but I tell people like having abortion was the pregnancy was the best mistake I never made. Like having the opportunity to have that choice to free myself from that relationship, to reconcile with my family, and then to continue on my educational and professional journey, like having an abortion, being able to have an abortion did all of those things for me. Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Early Career Moves podcast. Today we have Diana Limon Mercado on today's episode. Diana is the executive director of Planned Parenthood Texas. And as you can imagine, Texas is a state where Planned Parenthood often has to go to bat many, many, many times to protect Texas women, people of color, women of color. And so on this episode, you get to hear what that journey has been like for Diana to become an executive director of such a high profile, national, well-funded nonprofit and what that job is like and all the skills that she's had to develop, all the hats that she has to wear to be able to be successful and fiercely lead this whole organization in a battle that is often very contentious, very ugly, and very challenging. So the other thing I'll say is that Diana also talks about her path to run for office in the state of Texas. She ran and won the Travis County Democratic Party chair role, which is actually a harder position to win, requires more votes than city council role. Diana has a long, long history. Her family has a long history of being in Austin, Texas, of being in Texas, period. And so it's just a beautiful story of how she said yes after being asked to run for office without having a plan, without having even really considered it, and what it was like to jump into the race and to lead. Can't wait to hear what you think. This episode is really special. Enjoy. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. Hey, Diana, thanks so much for joining today's podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and get to connect with you. Yeah. So Diana, I'm really excited to highlight your early career journey that's led you to now work as executive director at Planned Parenthood. One thing I know about you is you are a hardcore Austin native. A lot of people live in Austin that are not really from here. It's a city filled with transplants. I know that you've seen the city evolve just so much you know, over your whole life. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background growing up in Austin and what your experience has been like? Yeah, so I am hardcore from Austin. 
I will say I am very welcoming and obviously love how like rich and diverse and experience and culture our city is because we have so many other people from other parts of the country and world here. Mm-hmm. Having a unique experience as somebody who's grown up here for I'm 40 now, so my entire life. And my family has been in the central Texas and Austin area for 130 years now. Wow. Yeah. Um, my family moved here in 1889, mostly from from Mexico and like mostly from the San Luis Potosi area. But so my family has really deep roots here. They've been here for seven generations. I grew up with that big sense of family, my immediate family, and then my bigger extended family who was really deeply rooted in like local business. My grandparents owned a bakery and a construction company, and they were real, a really big part of the Latino and up and coming like Chicano political and business culture here. And so I was really just surrounded by that sense of family growing up. And I went to Austin High where my parents, my grandparents went to high school. (laughs) Maybe my kids looked at a high school. I think what was a little bit different about my upbringing is that my parents were teens when they had me. So my mom and my dad had me when they were 16. And so I mostly grew up alongside my parents in the 80s and the 90s um, in Austin. And I was also, even though that they were teen parents, they were really committed to my education and to making sure that I could, you know, have more opportunities than they had. And so I was the first one in my family to be able to go to college and to graduate college. And so I went to Texas State. Um, It was a little bit bumpy, but I eventually made it and then got my MBA at UT San Antonio and took a wide path to find my way to politics. But I'm really proud to still be able to live in the neighborhood that my family grew up in. And that was a big part of my upbringing to be able to raise my my own kids here with that experience. Mm -hmm. I will say it was really hard, though, with the pressures and the changes like in economics and housing affordability and property taxes and our school system, making sure that our school system is meeting the needs particularly of Latino children in Austin, which have not been a priority for a long time. A lot of it is the same stuff that my family was dealing with 40 years ago, but just now we're in 2021 and now I'm having to figure out how to navigate it. Yeah. And so when you were growing up, what memories do you have of what you wanted to be when you grew up? What did you tell people when you were like a kid and when you were growing up? Yeah, it's so funny. I thought about this not too long ago. And I was when I was little, I really wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. <laughs> it wasn't like, right, you see a lot of children, like there are generational like doctors and families and generational yeah. lawyers, right? And if you see it, you can be it type of thing, right? And I was not around any lawyers, but I knew I wanted to help people. And I had some sense that like lawyers help people. And lawyers are seen as like professional leaders in their community for some reason. I don't really know where I got all those ideas from. Because like I said, I nobody else in my family was going to college or had graduated college. Nobody certainly had a professional degree. So I had this idea in my head that I wanted to be a lawyer. But I can remember telling people when you're little, 8, 9, 10, people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'll say, oh, I want to be a lawyer. And people would be like, oh, that's so cute. Me, how Like I was saying, I wanted to be president. Queen. Mm. It was such a far off idea from the community that I was in that anybody could be a lawyer that they were just like, Oh, that's so sweet. Miha, go to school and work hard. But I don't think anybody ever really believed that I could do that. And so at some point, I think I didn't believe that I could do that because it seemed so far out of reach. Now, knowing what I know in my professional work and how many lawyers I'm around, I'm like, it's really (laughs) not that hard. I could have been a lawyer. (laughs) Totally. And maybe you dodged a bullet though, right? Because being a lawyer is actually not as glamorous as people think like make you think that it is when you're a kid. Yeah. And I think it worked out for me in the situation 
I was in when I was making my decisions about what schools to go to and what made sense for me, both like in my current economic situation and my future economic situation. So ultimately, I'm still in the position I'm in. I work with a lot of lawyers. And sometimes I tell people I play lawyer, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't give any real legal advice. But I get to do all of those things without having had to go through the, the student debt burden of becoming a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we actually pivot a little bit to telling us what you do now? So tell us what you do today. What does that day-to-day look like? Yeah. So today I am the executive director for Planned Parenthood Texas Votes, which is the advocacy and political arm for Planned Parenthood in Texas. Planned Parenthood in Texas, across three different healthcare entities, um, operate 40 health centers across the state. They serve about 125 thousand patients a year. They have been in Texas for almost 90 years and people know my parent has been providing healthcare across the country for over a hundred years. My job as people who are from Texas can imagine is tough because my job is to represent Planned Parenthood and the patients and doctors of Planned Parenthood to the Texas legislature. And you all know, and people who are familiar with Texas politics know that we have a very hostile state government here, both in our Texas legislature, which is a um, majority Republican as well as the Texas Senate and all of our top state officials, including Governor Greg Abbott, who's particularly hostile, along with our Attorney General Ken Paxton, Lieutenant Governor Mm -hmm. Dan Patrick. So most of my job is leading a team. Our team is about 15 people right now. So leading the team and the organization that does the legislative advocacy. So lobbying elected officials through grassroots lobbying and advocating with grassroots communities, actual government relations work, doing education and lobbying directly with members and with legislative staff. And then we also run the other side of the campaign. So when it comes to election season, helping to elect candidates that we think can win, who will be champions for sexual and reproductive health. There's a lot of other stuff we do in between there now, in between, you know, then and now we'll have special sessions coming up around redistricting and voting rights. Those are obviously very important for reproductive rights and are part of the bigger fight for reproductive justice and reproductive freedom. And so we'll be supporting coalition partners on those issues. We also do things like mobilizing and advocating around the upcoming SCOTUS cases around abortion rights Mm -hmm. and working with partners to just protect and expand the health safety network in Texas so that all Texans can have access to the sexual reproductive health care they need, which includes preventive care, sex education, and abortion care. So My job is, you know, working with our GR folks on our lobbying strategy, our political folks on our election strategy, our communication folks, making sure that we're pushing their narrative and getting our perspective out there with our organizing team, uh, making sure that they're resourced to build up, recruit, identify volunteers and engage them to become community leaders and fundraising around all of that and working with my board as well. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So much on your plate. So how did you land at Planned Parenthood and how long have you been there? I've been at Planned Parenthood. I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary a couple months ago. (laughs) Thanks. I can't believe it. I always tell people that working at Planned Parenthood is like dog years though. So really it's like 40 years. Um, because we just are in crisis communications all the time, right? How I got to Planned Parenthood is a windy path. Like I said, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I went to Texas State. I mostly went to Texas State because my parents saved their entire lives to be able to pay for me to go to college so that I was able to go to my undergrad with no student debt. And that wasn't, they did, did believe they were gifting me a huge gift of opportunity and education, but also in my family, and I know many other Latino families and right, like the thought of credit 
was like a bad idea, right? And people only knew how to pay for things in cash. So my family had an ex, my family knew nothing about FAFSA. My family just had this expectation that like, if I was going to be the first one to go to college, that they needed to figure out a way to help me pay for it. Cause like they literally wanted to pay cash. For me wow. That's, that's so interesting. I, I don't think I've met anyone who had that story where like their parents were like, we need to figure out how to pay for this in cash. <laughs> yeah, basically. So my parents saved their whole lives so that when I was going off to college, I paid by semester, obviously like everybody, but I was, I didn't have to take on any debt and my family didn't have to take on any debt to do that because saving for education was such a central part of my mom and my dad's relationship, even though they were divorced, but co-parenting together. And so I had budget constraints, I think is the other flip side of that though. (laughs) I'm going to be the first one in your family to go to college and we're going to help you do that. But like, here's what we can afford, you know? And there were no options for me beyond that. Like I said, my family knew nothing about FAFSA. The idea of credit was thought of as very negatively. And so I knew that like, I was going to be limited to state school options, mm-hmm. right? And like, going off to college and paying for room and board, none of that was in the savings plan. <laughs> and was not going to be in the financial plan that my family put together for me. Mm-hmm. And so then I eventually ended up in business. And it felt like I knew I was a Jane of all trades type of person and business felt like a place where I could do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a good foundation for being a person that like was not totally sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be employable. Oh, yeah. And I also being the first in my family to go to college, I didn't even know that like liberal arts existed Mm -hmm. as a degree plan. I literally thought when you went to college, you had to become like a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a business person. Yeah. So being a business major seemed like it'd be a good fit for me. I didn't really know what I wanted to do other than I wanted to uh, be employable after I got done. Yeah, very pragmatic, right? <laughs> yes. I finished up business school for my undergrad. I first got my associates from Austin Community College in business administration. And then I finished at Texas State mm-hmm. and got my my BBA in management. And so then afterwards, I got a job with the city of Austin, um, working at the municipal court, which is where you go to pay parking tickets and speaking tickets and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then my job um, was to actually work in the Travis County Jail in the magistrate courtroom, which is where you go to when you get arrested. So I ended up working in the county, Travis County Jail in the magistrate courtroom. And it was really there that like, I had always known my whole life that the system was not fair and sort of about race and racism and systemic racism um, and sexism. I never had a vocabulary that allowed me to clearly articulate those ideas in a compelling way or was in a setting that I felt like those ideas could be nourished to help me fully form what I was feeling and seeing. And so I think for a long time, people just thought like I was a person that complained about white people all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I was like, this doesn't seem fair to me. And then when I went to the jail, I saw like very clearly firsthand of what like systemic racism looked like and how unjust our justice system was. And I just really felt like I couldn't be a cog in the wheel of tearing families apart. It was at a time particularly where the Democratic sheriff had allowed ICE to come into the jail and establish Um, a direct partnership so that if people were getting pulled over for expired registration or taillight out, that they could be arrested and be deported for nonviolent offenses and like whole families torn apart and listening to people tell me I can't be deported because my daughter's waiting for me to pick her up at school and I'm the only income in the family. 
Yeah. And I just knew I couldn't be there and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't know how to do it, but I just knew I couldn't do this anymore. And the city of Austin had a tuition assistance program. So I started looking at graduate school opportunities. Again, I felt like I was a Jane of all trades. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to be employable. I wanted to help people. And I did have a thought at this moment that should I go to law school? And I thought there was some sort of thought within me that I think I'm going to want to work in policy or politics. And I don't think that I will stand out with a law degree because I'm never going to have the fanciest law degree. I'm not going to get in to the shiny Harvard Law School or Northwestern or whatever else it is. I just knew that about me. Like, I'm a good student, but I'm not top of the LSAT scores. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, maybe if I get an MBA, one, um, I'll be employable and I can do some other things. And if I go into politics and it doesn't work out, I can still get other jobs. Yeah. (laughs) And then two, if I'm in politics, like maybe it'll differentiate me from everybody else that is really coming, right? There are so many JDs in the policy and politics Mm -hmm. field that is not a singular, but a pretty homogenous problem-solving skill set that they bring to the table. Totally, yeah. Yeah, that is why I decided to go get my MBA. I went to UT San Antonio, and then I actually got a scholarship from UT San Antonio, which paid for part of my graduate degree, and then the city of Austin paid for part of it. But both of those things required me to be enrolled at school full-time in San Antonio and to work full-time in Austin to get take advantage of both of those things. So then I had to go to school full-time in San Antonio. I finished my MBA in 18 months. I had to work full-time in Austin. I commuted to San Antonio four days a week. My life was busy from 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. pretty much every single day. So I had finished my MBA in December 2008. And then 2009, I wanted to work in the legislature because working in the courts, the judges had told me, if you want to change these laws, you need to go work in the Capitol and see how those laws are made. (laughs) I asked like literally everybody in my personal network, how do you work in the Capitol? I tell people it was like walking around a giant concrete building and not being able to find the door. Like I could not find the professional door to like, how do you work in this building? Because there's not job postings. So eventually my stepmom knew a lady who knew a lady who knew a lady (laughs) that worked in the Capitol was looking for an unpaid intern. I was already in my late 20s. I still had my job at the city, but I had an MBA in hand and was working for free in the capital because I just wanted to figure out how you break into this field mm-hmm. and how I could help people. And eventually, my they switched me to a full-time paid position. I became, became a legislative aide, a comms director, worked in the legislative session. And then from there, I think I met you not too, too long after I worked at the Coalition mm-hmm. of Texas with Disabilities. I did the AmeriCorps VISTA program. I went to Annie's List and did their campaign school, worked on a campaign, and then worked for the Texas Medical Association briefly post-campaign. And then that's when I got hired at Planned Parenthood. But I found my job at Planned Parenthood because of the connections I had made at Annie's List, which is also how I met you as well. Mm-hmm. And really having that community that was dedicated to uplifting women in politics yeah. from entry level to becoming candidates, that network is where I've met so many of the people I still work with today, including the women who eventually hired me at at Planned Parenthood, who I still work with now. Wow. What a winding road to get there. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. That was not the short version. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good to get a sense of where your head was at when you were making all these moves. Yeah, it was very windy, but I think I think I ended up where I was supposed to be and where I wanted to be. But like I said, a lot of these things, I didn't know jobs like this existed. I didn't know how you got jobs like this. I knew that I cared about these causes, but I did not have the vocabulary or analysis to understand how deep the work was and how fast it worked. Yeah. And so what made you choose 
eventually like, you know, reproductive justice as your policy area, because it sounds like you explored other things as well, right? And you were interested in other things. What made you say, no, this is the cause that I really care about? Yeah. So when I was working in that first session in 2009, the legislative session, my first time to work in the Capitol, I started working on some bills that were brought to us by some other advocacy organizations that were specific to conditions for incarcerated women who were pregnant. So the bills I specifically worked on, one, banned the practice of shackling pregnant inmates during labor and delivery, which as I say these words out of my mouth, is like such an incredibly inhumane thing that was happening in our jails. Like now at the time I had not given childbirth and it seemed inhumane. Now I have given childbirth twice and it is worse than I could have ever imagined that women in that situation were being treated that way during, right, such an, right, one of the most dangerous points in their life, yeah. right, in your healthcare journey as a woman. So I started working on that bill. And then another one was to require prenatal standards for county jails in Texas for incarcerated women. And up again, up until 2009, county jails were not required to have prenatal care provided for women. And you can imagine these, right, these pregnancies are probably already high risk. They probably not had access to care prior to being pregnant, let alone through their pregnancy, the stress of the pregnancy, malnourishment, in addition to the health of the fetus, right? Like these are some of the highest uh, risk pregnancy and they have a ton of health and socioeconomic factors, right? Like already bearing down on the future of this fetus. And like I said, I came from seeing the injustice of the justice system and then coming into the Capitol and having the opportunity to work on this legislation that then passed and was implemented. It was a really exciting thing to be a part of. Then going to work for the Coalition of Texans with Disabilities, which worked on disability rights, and then the Texas Medical Association, which is not a progressive leaning organization that's actually fairly conservative, but really see the doctor's side of advocacy. And while all of those things that were happening in my professional life that I was seeing as a woman in my 20s was going through my own, you know, reproductive journey. So I myself had two abortions, one early when I was in my late teens, early 20s, as a result of an abusive relationship and reproductive coercion and lack of consent and all the terrible things you can imagine that happened around an abusive relationship were happening to me. And having an abortion really changed my life and my motivation in so many ways. There's a lot happening in my personal life there, but I tell people like having the abortion was the pregnancy was the best mistake I never made. Like having the opportunity to have that choice to free myself from that relationship, to reconcile with my family, and then to continue on my educational and professional journey. Like having an abortion, being able to have an abortion did all of those things for me. And so then later in life, I had a second abortion um, because my birth control failed. And then plan B also failed, which are all, um, unfortunately, right? Like birth control is not 100%, plan B is not 100%. So then finding myself in that second situation, which is very different circumstances and was a supportive person and all these other types of things that were very different. But like going through those two experiences in my life and how unique they were, but also how alone I felt, but also knowing that one in four women is going to have an abortion in their lifetime. Like, even though you feel isolated, you're not right. This is actually a very common, one of the most common medical procedures in the country. And all of those things collided, like my experience working in health policy with my own personal 
experiences and being able to work at Planned Parenthood just all coalesced together and continue to just motivate me to stay involved. Not only, mostly because I think of myself, Diana, at 19, I was nowhere near advocacy or advocacy for reproductive rights for the Capitol. I was, had just barely probably voted for the first time. Yeah. And so I do feel like part of my team's job and my job is to make the voices and experiences of all those women and other Texans who have no idea the politics around the healthcare, their decisions they're making. But if they did, I think that they would be grateful that they have people there advocating for them. Mm -hmm. And like I said, as women, our reproductive health journey is very personal, but it is all very normal. Now, as a 40-year-old woman, I've shared with y'all, I've had two abortions. I had my pregnancy with my older daughter. I had a miscarriage. And then I had my pregnancy with my third daughter, my second daughter. And in each of those, right, like pregnancy was also very hard. Yeah. The healthcare system around pregnancy, health outcomes around pregnancy, right, the professional, right, ramifications of pregnancy, all of those kinds of things. Like, and like I said, I've had five pregnancies and four years old, and all of that's very normal. And so it's something that just continues to make me passionate. Yeah. So I, I think it's so powerful that like you are able to talk about your personal story and connect it to your career. I want to move over a little bit to the running for office part of your life, because this is something probably that's always been in the back of your mind, thinking about running for office. But like, how the heck have you even balanced that with like your job at Planned Parenthood? Like, how does that even work? Yeah. So in 2017, I announced that I was running for office for the Travis County Democratic Party chair, um, which I then won in 2018 and served from 2018 until 2020. So almost a little bit less than a year ago, I stepped down, but I was serving that role for two years. Most people don't know that position is elected. They're just like, oh, party chair, like for pick. And you no, know, in Texas, it's actually an elected position. It's a countywide election position. So it's like 100,000 plus voters that vote in this race. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of money you have to raise and you have to run a real campaign, which I think is shocking to people when they hear that a party position like has to actually compete on this level. Because yeah. as party chair, like I earned more votes than our city council members do wow. <laughs> on this ballot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is wild. I had never, I will say, okay. When we talked about Annie's List earlier, so in 2010-ish, 2011, roughly around when I met you, I went to Annie's List Campaign School, which was which was dedicated to training campaign staff. So people who want to become campaign managers or finance managers or field directors, all those kinds of things. So I went to Annie's List Campaign School because I wanted to work in politics and I wanted to learn how all of it works. I had just come from working in the Capitol and advocacy, and I wanted to get a 360 view of how this political how political machines operate. And so I went to this campaign staffer school. And literally, it was the first day of training, and I was in the elevator with Genevieve Van Cleve, who I think you worked with. So Genevieve Van Cleve was the political director at Amy's List at the time. And so it's my first day of training. I get in the elevator. Genevieve's in there. We press the button. We start going up. And she goes, so when are you going to run for office? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Love it. I know. And I had, until she asked me in that moment, I had never thought of it. And it's fast forward seven years later, Genevieve and I are still very good friends and still work together. Genevieve works at um, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee here working on gerrymandering um, and redistricting in Texas. We're still good friends. I consider her a wonderful mentor um, of mine. And so in 2017, there was a whole thing happening here in Travis County with the former party chair. He was the first 
African-American man to ever hold to, he was actually, he was the second, but he was the youngest um, person to hold that seat. And so he was right sort of at the intersection of like ageism and racism within the Democratic Party. I've seen a lot of that, right, of like him not really getting like a fair shot at being successful Mm -hmm. in the position Mm -hmm. from afar, because my job was still like involved in local politics-ish. And so then he stepped down from the position and there was a whole conversation around who was going to be next. And frequently it's like a normal political machine. Somebody's the anointed one, right? Like they kiss the right rings and everybody's, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, they're definitely going to be the next chair. And it was like three names that came up and it was like all white men. (laughs) And I was just like, are y'all kidding me? It is 2017, right? And y'all know like our country has been going through a political reckoning for the last five years pretty intensely, right? Since the Donald Trump election. And so this is 2017, right? We're like just a year separated from that election result. The country is still in the midst of like Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And then Travis County is the bluest county in a state as diverse as Texas. And the only candidates they put up to run the Democratic Party were all white men, including who was one who was a known sexual predator. Oh my gosh. And I was just like, y'all have to be effing kidding me. This is some BS. And so I was honestly just watching it and complaining about it. And I was complaining to my boss at the time, who was the executive director. I was the deputy director prior to this position for Planned Parenthood. So at Planned Parenthood, my job is to have a a thumb on the pulse of politics at the local level. And so I was telling, I was just honestly debriefing her on this. And I was like, this is some BS. I was like, and this person and that person. And she was like, why don't you do it? And I was like, that's crazy. (laughs) Was that the first time that that like the idea of running for that position had come to mind? Yeah, my boss asked me in a meeting. (laughs) um, And it was extra crazy because I was pregnant with my second daughter. And my boss was like the only person who knew. Like my my husband and my boss knew. (laughs) I don't even think my mom knew yet. Oh my God. (laughs) And so my boss asked me and I was like, that's just crazy. And I was like, haha, whatever. And then we finished our meeting. The day goes on. And then the next day I get a phone call from an unknown number, which is also weird because I never answer unknown numbers, but I answered and there was a guy on the phone. He said, my name is Daniel Segura Kelly. I'm a precinct chair with the Travis County Democratic Party. We're trying to recruit a candidate and your name came up. Would you be interested in running? And I said, yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) And he goes, did you hear me? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I did. I said, and yeah, I think I will. And he was like, do you need time to think about it? Oh, my gosh. I honestly hadn't even talked to my husband about it. I was I love, I love how you were just casually. <laughs> yeah. I just, at that moment, I honestly felt like this is a situation I really care about. It's my local community, and it's a, right, a party that I want to be to deliver on the promises that it makes because I know it can. And I was really frustrated by the current situation. Like I said, those names had come up. We're in this political reckoning moment at the moment. I don't see anybody stepping up that I feel like I could get behind or even be okay with, you know? And then having my boss ask me and then having this random person ask me, it just felt like I was supposed to. Yeah. And so I said yes. And then I came home and told my husband and he was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then I did the sort of the run around town to who are the political people I need to talk to. And this luckily came back because my family is so deeply rooted in in the community for 130 years. My cousins, my cousin Johnny Limon, who passed last year, unfortunately, and my cousin Lon and Limon, they're very like 
deeply connected and rooted in like the local politics with Congressman Lloyd Doggett and all the candidates knew them as the political go-tos for our family. And so the first people I called were my family who knew something about politics. And I said, I think I want to do this. And they said, we're behind you and let's get some other people on board. And so we did. I raised $50,000. I will say the strength of our campaign was really the people behind it and the networks and relationships I had built through Planned Parenthood and advocacy in the Capitol in my community work. And we truly were like a grassroots people first campaign. My opponent didn't have to raise any money. She was independently wealthy. She had the support of almost all of the elected officials, the state delegation, the senator, all endorsed my opponent. She won almost all of the Democratic club endorsements. But we just got out there and talked to as many people as we could about why this was a transformational campaign and transformational moment for the party and that we needed to uplift more young people in the party and more people of color and particularly women of color, of which I was the first ever woman of color to serve and be elected in that role. And the first Hispanic person of any gender wow. to hold that role. That's wild which is, to me. It is just wild. Like I said, it's the bluest county in a state as diverse as Texas and a Latino person had never held this seat at all, right? What the political machine is dependent on the Latino community yeah. to move everything <laughs> forward. So, yeah, so it was like totally wild. We were able to just create a lot of grassroots momentum around, you know, just a bold vision for what the party could be. Luckily, it connected with voters. And I think we won by, it was, I think it was closest. I think we won by two or three points. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. I will say being party chair was exhausting. And I was able to manage it because um, of my current job in politics, and my current schedule in politics. I could do morning meetings for the party and then work my day job at Planned Parenthood and do end of the day meetings for the party, weekend activities for the party or Planned Parenthood, using my drive time for call time, being really as efficient as I could. And I'm very lucky to have an incredible support network with my husband and my mom and my sisters and my dad and the rest of my family who are able to help in and support me and my whole family while I was running for office and then being elected. Um, I also think everybody should think about running for office. And I will say the most common thing I hear from women, and it is very unfortunately normal and partially due to the patriarchy that we grew up in. But women have to be asked, men don't even have to be asked to run for office, right? Like I call it divine recruitment. They just woke up and they're like, God told me I should run for office and I'd be great at this. But women, like on average, you have to ask them seven times before they will consider it. I will say that did play into the factor of the second time I got asked why I said yes so quickly when Daniel called me. Because my boss had just asked me, I knew that I was more than competent to do the job that we were talking about for a party chair. And then Daniel called me and I knew because I trained people on this, that women have to be asked on average seven times to run for office before they do it. And I said, two people had asked me twice in two days about a thing I knew I could do because at this point I had been actively going on that journey of overcoming imposter syndrome. that I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hesitate this time. That's a great place to end. As a Latina woman who's a Texan, thank you for just the work that you do every day because it's on our behalf. I'm so inspired and just thank you. And thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It was so much fun to get to connect with you and to talk about all these things I haven't thought about this much lately, but I'm glad I did. It gives me a lot of energy. 
Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.